Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis six thirteen through 22. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set, set the door of the ark in its side. Make it, with, make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of everything living, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kinds, two of every sort shall come into, into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Let's pray together. Father, you have promised that your word never goes forth without accomplishing your purposes. And so we sit here and we receive your word now with humble expectation to see what you might do in us as individuals and as a church. We know your word is powerful. It is not like any other book. So please do your work in our hearts now, each and every one of us. Mold us as a people to be who you would have us to be. Please help me to serve your people well. Please stretch our, our hearts and our minds and our souls to be able to receive your revelation here. Let us be soft and moldable in your hands now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I always appreciate when you pray with me, uh, anytime, but especially before a sermon. Um, I'm regular, regularly struck with how supernatural this is. What we could do is we could come and sit here and I could give you some of my thoughts about an ancient text and we could go on and go have lunch. What we want to happen is for God himself to speak to us in his word. And that is the stuff of miracles. That is supernatural. So I pray that that will happen this morning. We're looking at a famous story. I guarantee nobody in here has never at least heard of Noah and the ark. Anybody who has gone through Sunday school or VBS or anything like that has heard the story of Noah and the ark. You can picture in your mind flannel graph Images, maybe. 
different ways different teachers have taught you about Noah and the ark. Well, we're back in this famous story, hopefully looking at it with fresh eyes as we move through Genesis. To catch you up, uh, if you've not been here over the last several weeks, when we get to verse 13 where Will began our reading for the day, the world is corrupt. It's as corrupt and violent and wicked and evil as your imagination can dream of. If they had news like we do, it would always be bad. The world was corrupt. But there was one man named Noah who was righteous. In the midst of this evil and wicked world, there was Noah who was righteous and blameless and walked with God. Now, when we get to these verses that we're studying today, we know from some previous verses that he is now over 500 years old. 500. 500 years old. Have you ever been in a church service on a Mother's Day or Father's Day and they have people stand up and they ask how old they are and they slowly whittle it down to the very oldest man or oldest woman? No one has ever been near 500 years old in my experience of those services. So just think about it for a minute. Let's not breeze over any of the details here. Think about Noah being 500 years old as, according to the scripture, the lone righteous man in an increasingly awful and corrupt evil world 500 years you know we feel some of the tension of being christians in a corrupt world now yeah i'm 35 and i've been a christian i believe since i was eight so that's how many years i've been a christian in a corrupt and evil world 500 years for noah it couldn't have been easy you know, we, this is what we know about Noah, the ark, the flood, and things that happen afterwards. God's covenant with him. Those are the big headlines of Noah. But he lived 500 years before any of that ever happened. Just getting up in the morning, eating breakfast, going about whatever his work was, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, decades, centuries, just righteous blameless living before the Lord, before any of this ever happened. I wonder if he knew that God was getting fed up. It says he walked with God. I feel that I'm closer with God at 35 than I was at 25. If I could live to be 500, if that trend continues, I should be quite close with him. I wonder if he sensed that God was getting fed up with this mess, if he had some idea that something was about to happen. We don't know, but we get to verse 13, and God tells him. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, we're not told... How God said this to Noah, I don't know if it was an audible voice, I don't know if he sent an angel, I don't know if it was in a dream or a vision or some uh, unexplainable just sense from the Holy Spirit within him. And we don't know how Noah reacted to it. How do you think you might have reacted to that news? You know, over 500 years, I imagine he had quite a lot of relationships in the community to know that they were all going to be destroyed. 
I wonder if he reacted with terror. I wonder if he reacted with maybe a sense of vindication. Here, 500 years, I've been the one righteous person. Everybody's making fun of me. Nobody understands me. And now at last, they'll see God's on my side. I wonder if he thought about all of his cousins that were going to be destroyed. I wonder if he thought maybe he too and his family were going to be destroyed at this point. There's a lot we don't know. There's very little included in the scripture. What is clear is that he may not have even had time to react before all the instructions started to come. Look at the instructions that pour out, starting at verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Was he scrambling to get something to write with? This is, this is a big job. And we don't know what Noah's trade might have been before this. Maybe he was some sort of ancient engineer. So he had some know-how here, but we don't know. He may have just been a farmer. You know, we don't know about cubits. That's not how we measure things here. But to picture the ark, you can picture a vessel a little bit longer than a football field, about as wide as a football field, and three stories tall. And that's roughly the size of this boat that God is instructing Noah to make here. Whatever Noah's mission statement for his life had been up to this point, from here on for the next about 100 years, it was simple. Build the ark. That was it. And it probably took him about 100 years. Building this boat. Building this ark. Now next we come to verses 17 and 18. And these are the the crux of the passage. God, still talking to Noah, says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I'm going to destroy everyone and everything except for you and your immediate family. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. You know, if this was the first time you read this and you see what God is planning to do, you might think that he is just an irate and angry deity, Almost like a a drunken father at the dinner table who just explodes in anger, flips the table over and says, enough, I've had enough. But you see in verse 18 that he's not irate, out of control in anger. He is measured and he's deliberate. And even though this is going to be catastrophic, this is going to be iron-fisted and sure wrath. He is not giving up on humanity. And through Noah, he's establishing a covenant. Now, covenants are really common in ancient cultures. It's how, it's sort of the way we use contracts now. It's how business was done. Uh, It was common in politics and family life and religion. Here's the formal definition of a covenant. A solemn bond established between two or more parties. 
involving a firm commitment to the relationship and its obligations. That's basically what a covenant is. A solemn bond that establishes a committed relationship of obligation between two or more parties. We see him here with Noah establishing a covenant. We'll see it later with Abraham. We'll see it later with Moses, with David, and in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. God securing relationship with the remnant of people. It's a constant theme throughout the scripture. Now the language here indicates he's not making a new covenant, a new relationship. He's confirming an already existing covenant. There's an implied covenant when he created mankind. And he's saying, even though I'm going to have to wipe the slate clean, I'm not done with my relationship with mankind. If you think about it in marital terms, he's not divorcing mankind forever to be separated from him. He's renewing his vows with mankind after a horrible season of broken trust and sin. Then he goes on with more instructions, verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So many questions come up at this. There is endless debate about, is this history? Did this really happen? Could it have happened? Where did he get all this lumber? How did they lift and place beams? What kind of technology existed for them to build this thing? It says the animals would come to him. How did, how did he gather them all in? What about dangerous ones? Were dinosaurs involved? How did he get all this food and store up all this food? What was his family's reaction to all this? What was the community's reaction to all this? I don't know. God just doesn't reveal all these details we want so badly to know. What we do know is the verse that it lands on here and where we'll land. Verse 22, Noah did this. He did all God commanded him. Now, we could speculate and and talk about the science behind Noah and the ark and the flood a great deal. I say we could very hypothetically because I'm not a brainiac about these things. I read a good bit about it. I'd encourage you to go and do the research. It's fascinating to think how this could happen. Our job here is to focus on the main and plain things. So what are we to take away from this story? We're adults now. This is classically a children's Sunday school story. We're all adults in here. What are we to take away from this? This week, in our real life, you're going to be facing things when you get home and Monday. What are we to take away from this? It brings to mind two different images. One is a Christmas ornament. It's one of our favorite Christmas ornaments. It's actually not on our tree. It's on David and Sandy's tree. And it's a Noah's Ark Christmas ornament. And it's just so cute. It's like that big. It's very colorful. 
and you see all the, the animals' heads sticking out the window, and you can actually even open it up, and you see all the animals, and there's happy giraffes and hippo, hippopotamuses, however you say that, and lions. It's a great little ornament. I, so I think of that. And then I think of a painting that hangs in one of the hallways at the church where Meredith and I were members uh, when we were dating in college. It's called Providence Baptist Church up in Raleigh. It's at an intersection of all the universities up there. So there was tons of college students that went there. In one of the hallways was this massive painting, huge painting. I'm trying to think of how to tell you how big it was. Bigger than that square created on that wall there. Huge painting. And it was a painting of the flood scene. And so it was dark and ominous skies, stormy, dark clouds, a dark and, and almost black sea, no land in sight, sort of roiling, raging waters. And then off kind of in the distance, a dark almost silhouette of what must be the ark. Looked like maybe it was a mile or two away from the vantage point of the viewer. And so you take in this huge scene and then... It's almost hidden in the painting, in the foreground, a man struggling to try to keep his head above the waters. See, we've made this history into a delightful children's fairy tale. When in reality, it is one of the most horrific events that has ever happened in human history. It's horrific. And if we will allow it to settle in the reality of it, it's still horrifying. And the point is, our God did this. It's not that he allowed it to happen. It's not that he said, well, these Weather phenomenons are going to happen because of the sins of the people, and I'm just going to step back and let them reap the whirlwind. He didn't just allow it to happen. He did it. He made it happen. Men, women, elderly, children, everybody destroyed. Our God has many facets. And he is loving, and he is gracious, and he is sovereign, and he is powerful, and he is wise, and he is wrathful. I wanted to share with you a couple other examples of God's wrath. And there's a lot of classic ones we could turn to. You think about the ten plagues and things like that. I wanted to take you to two that you may not be familiar with. Just two brief examples. One of them is in Exodus Chapter 22, and you don't have to flip there. It'll be projected if you just want to listen. We're not going to stay here long. This is after God had delivered his people from Egypt, and he's giving them the law. Let me just read these verses. Exodus 22, verses 21 through 24. God, giving his law to his people, says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners. In the land of Egypt, you were foreigners. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, 
I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. Now, that's our God who said that to his people. That's the God we've been singing to and about this morning together. Let me give you one more example. This is in Numbers, another one you might not be familiar with. Numbers chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 52 and 53. Here, God is instructing his people how they should relate to him, how they should live in the wilderness. Remember, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And God developed with them this system with the tabernacle, and his presence would dwell in the tabernacle. And there was a lot of instructions about how they should relate to him and his presence there. And here he's explaining to them what they should do at night when they're going to bed. He says in verse 52, The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites, who were the priests, those set apart to be intermediaries between God and the people, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. As you read through the first five books of the Bible, it's as if God and his presence is charged with this high-voltage electric wrath and holiness. And if a sinful and unholy human being comes into contact, he just is dead. And so here, as he's instructing them how to go to bed at night in their wilderness wanderings, he says, you need to build a layer of insulation around the tabernacle with the Levite priests so that none of you mistakenly wander into the tabernacle and are killed by my wrath. Now, again, this is our God. This is the God that we just prayed to and talked to. Now you say, well, I'm glad that's the Old Testament God and not the New Testament God. I'm glad we're removed centuries and centuries from that God. Because the New Testament God is a teddy bear. He's like a a fluffy little lamb. Wouldn't hurt a soul. Let's read a couple of New Testament passages. We'll start with Matthew chapter 24. Starting at verse 36. Jesus is teaching his followers about a judgment that is to come. And he says, but, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as, we, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They'll be on Facebook, they'll be walking their dogs, they'll be microwaving their leftovers. And then just like the flood came in the days of Noah, the Son of Man will return. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Wrath was real for the people of Noah's generation. It was real all throughout the Old Testament. It continues to be real in the New Testament and a promise for the future. Let's look at one more, Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just like it was flooded, it will be burned. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And he goes on, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, there's wrath to come. God didn't set aside that part of his character in the Old Testament. He retained it. It's still part of him. Now, as Christians, we're not just church folks. We are people sheltering under Jesus Christ for protection from this wrath. I remember as a kid wondering why the cross had to be so violent and so bloody. I think about it during our Good Friday services at Easter. Why did it have to be like that? Why did it have to be so dark, so bad? Well, Jesus was absorbing God's wrath in my place. He didn't sin and he didn't deserve it, but he was absorbing it for sinners like me. So that God's wrath would pass over me. And it would pass over you. Now think about these things and it's just so blood earnestly serious. It's just so serious. 
to remember that God is wrathful. We can get so caught up in doing our church stuff and doing our regular life stuff, and we can kind of forget what's at stake here. That just by virtue of being born, we are all in danger of tasting God's wrath in this sinful and corrupt world. And the only reason that he hasn't come back yet, the only reason Jesus hasn't returned is out of patience, because he wants people to repent and turn to him. And it's just so serious. It's more serious than I honestly feel like I can grasp. I have three closing applications here that come from those two New Testament passages. First one, what are we to take away from this? Is to stay awake. Back in Matthew 24, it said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Just to stay awake. Be Let's beware together of the the constant lullaby that our world is singing to us to try to get us spiritually to just go to sleep. Just focus on the daily tasks. Just focus on entertaining yourself enough to get through. Focus on some goals that will move you along and progress you in this world. Stay busy. Keep the earbuds in. Keep the screen in front. Just beware of the lullaby to spiritually go to sleep because the stakes are high. I had a counseling professor who told his class, including me, I was in his class, to write down on a little sticky note or a card, how can I glorify God today? And put it somewhere you'd see it. I put it in my wallet and it stayed there for years. It was in a part where I would see it every time I opened my wallet. Now, of course, eventually you're, you're able to just not even notice something like that, but I wonder how helpful it would be to get a little card or a sticky note and just write any minute and post it where we can see it all the time. Just the reminder, any minute, any minute and Christ could return. How would that put things in perspective for us? Number two, be faithful. That again comes from Matthew 24, part that I didn't read. Right after what I did read about the Son of Man coming, it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In my mind, it brings an image of a classroom. We've all been in classrooms as kids, if you can remember. None of you are 500 years old yet, I think you can remember. In a classroom, the teacher says, I've got to go make some copies. Here's a worksheet. Everybody just stay quiet and work on this worksheet until I return. And the teacher steps away. There are some students that immediately get up, start throwing paper, start making jokes, start making a racket, giving wedgies. The faithful student will stay at his desk, work on his worksheet, and keep his mouth closed because the teacher could return any minute. And when the teacher returns, all those idiots are going to be in trouble 
and the faithful student's going to be fine. That's the image that passage always brings to mind. Years and years ago, the teacher stepped out of the classroom, and he said, I'm coming back. Here's your assignment while I'm gone. Work on this. Make disciples of all nations. I'm coming back. And it's been a long time. And like in a classroom, the longer the time goes with the teacher out, the harder it is to stay focused on the worksheet. It's been a long time, and it's hard to stay focused on our assignment. But don't you want to be found faithful when he returns? Don't you want to be found faithful? You may not be the best evangelist, the best disciple maker. You may not have all the gifts that everybody that you wish you had. But you can be faithful where you are. As opposed to him returning and you having to face the fact that for decades you've just been goofing off. I listened to a sermon this week that has been a great deal to me by a pastor named Alistair Begg. If anyone, has anybody ever listened to Alistair Begg? He has a Scottish accent. He's great. Um, but part of the sermon that really stood out to me was about faithfulness. And it's just a reminder, you can't do everything, but you can do something. You can't do everything, but you can do something. God's placed us each here in this local church, for example, and given us each unique gifts and opportunities. And he doesn't mean for us to do everything, but he means for us to do something. And it's easy for us, especially those most involved in the church, to look at our church situation and see some discouraging elements. You know, Sunday school attendance in the 20s, prayer meeting attendance in the 2s, 3 Worship service attendance in the 50s? Where is everybody? What do we do? Do we need to turn the whole thing upside down? Do I need to paint my face like a clown and learn to juggle? And we start to feel like we've got to just overhaul everything. But in reality, if each and every one of us would be faithful at our post, that would be enough. That would be pleasing to the Lord. It may not mean that Doolin's Grove Church explodes numerically or in any other way, but it would please the Lord. Are we being faithful with our part? Because he's going to return. Stay awake. Be faithful. Like Noah did. About the only thing it says that Noah did in that passage that we started with was he just did everything the Lord told him to do. That was it. He didn't come up with the plan. He didn't think... I'll build an ark. He just did everything the Lord told him to do. He was just faithful, obedient. Stay awake, be faithful, and number three, evangelize. I think we kind of take for granted. We're Christians, we're supposed to be evangelistic, but we don't do it. At least not as faithfully as we could. This comes from, well, all these passages you know, last night I was meditating on this as I was trying to go to sleep, which is a, that's a Saturday night routine. There's no pastor that's not tossing and turning, thinking through his sermon on Saturday night. But I was thinking through these passages and these realities that I don't think about all that often. And I was praying, Lord, help me take this as seriously as I ought to. And I started to picture the faces of people. 
I started to picture the faces of people that I am close to and that I care about that I'm pretty certain are not Christians. And just, just seeing their face and thinking about the prospect of the Lord returning and his wrath burning hot against them. And honestly, it was just about more than I could take. I wanted to go and get my earbuds in my ears. I wanted to distract myself. Now, I don't think that we need to go around in a constant state of weeping over these realities because there is great hope. But I do think it ought to energize us to get to work. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Because God's wrath was real for Noah's generation, and it's real for ours too. And it's not all fun and games. Being the church together isn't just all about just trying to keep it going. There are people who are going to face the wrath of God if they do not repent of their sins and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. For us, it's very similar to Noah's day. But one difference is we've been allowed on the ark through Jesus Christ and we've been told to shout out to everybody we can reach, get on the ark. You know, Noah and his family were the only ones allowed on there. So their job was just building the ark, entering the ark. Our job is trying to tell everybody else, come on, get in the ark with us. Trust and follow Jesus Christ. In his name, there is salvation. There is forgiveness of sins. There is shelter from the coming wrath of God. Father, please help us. Please help me. This world is so distracting. And it feels like there's so much spiritual opposition against us. But through Jesus Christ, you have done an amazing thing and you have made a way for us to be saved, forgiven of our sins, cleansed, made right with you. So that his return is a good thing and not a bad thing. And you've placed us each where you've placed us and we're surrounded by people that don't know or have forgotten or have refused to believe that there are repercussions for sin and that you are holy. Oh, please help us, Father. Please help us. Please give us a boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Please give us open-door opportunities and conversations. Or let us not just be Christians in here together for an hour on Sundays, but be out there, Christians, proclaiming, sharing, talking about the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only way to salvation. Lord, help us to live in light of these truths, Help us to relate to people in light of these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.